We are in the writings of Yosef Kapach, the introduction of the Mishneh Torah, not the Rambam's introduction of the Mishneh Torah, but rather the introduction of Rabbi Yosef Kapach to the Mishneh Torah. So the page is going to look like this. It's going to be the first page. It doesn't even have a Hebrew number on it. And he writes the following words. We once read this together in Kolel. So if it sounds familiar to you, it's because we read it a few months back. Baruch Adonai Elohai Velohei Avotai. Blessed is Hashem, the God of my fathers, my God and the God of my fathers. Who guided me on the path of truth from time immemorial until today. From my earliest dawn, I can recall that I was educated, I was raised to respect, to love, to cherish the Torah of two of the princes of Israel. The teachings of Rabbeinu Sa'ad Yagaon in his commentaries of the written law of the Torah and in the early philosophies of the Jewish people. And in the teachings of Rabbeinu Moshe ben Maimon, the Rambam, in understanding the Talmud, in practical halakha, and in the continuation of understanding the beliefs of the Torah. So who are the two foundations in Rabbi Yosef Kapach's life? Rabbeinu Sa'ad Yagaon and the Rambam. And we know the Rambam, but we're going to get to what Rosadagon's role here is very soon. We tried with everything that we had. We did whatever we could not to deviate from his teachings in halakha, not right and not left. When in Yemen we began studying Mishnah, like our rabbis commanded, at the age of 10, you must start studying Mishnah. At the age of 10. At what age do you start studying Tanakh? At age 5. So by the time you reach the age of 10, you should be finished the Tanakh. Yes? When we studied Mishnah, we studied always together with the Arabic commentary on the Mishnah by the Rambam. It was our other mother tongue, meaning Arabic was a tongue that we knew, just like Hebrew. Said even though the street Arabic and the kitchen Arabic, you know, like the Arabic that's spoken is not as eloquent and, and professional as the Rambams. You can imagine the difference between spoken English and Shakespeare. Yeah, this is the style. But, because we studied so much his writings, it became another language to us. So we had our, our Hebrew, our spoken Arabic, and then the written Arabic, particularly of the Rambam. And that three, there's a, it's a teaching, the three fold, uh, um, you know when you have a string, you have plies, that's what it's called. One ply, two, maybe I'm... When you buy a rope, rope, you can have a one rope, it could be two ropes tied together, <laughs> three. There's a word for that in English. Three ply rope. Three twine. There's a word for it. Yeah. 
So when you buy such a rope that has three, our rabbis say it's not so quick to become disconnected. Meaning these three, they held us together in understanding the Torah. And we reached the age of studying Talmud, like our rabbis again commanded. At the age of 15, you start studying Talmud. So that means that you have another five years to finish the whole Mishnah. And because Rav Saidagon writes in Mishnah that most of a person's study should be in the Talmud. When we studied Gemara, we didn't ever leave the words of Rabbeinu Rambam, not in Halakha, not his commentary in the Mishnah, and we used these books to help us understand, because Rambam didn't write an explicit commentary in the Gemara. So we used his other writings to help us understand what did the Rambam understand in the Gemara. If you know the Rambam's conclusion, the Gemara has two opinions, and the Rambam rules like one of them, then you're able to begin to piece together how it is the Rambam got to that opinion? You read the Rambam's writings on the Mishnah and how he thought through the Mishnah, you could then trace a line from the Mishnah to the Halakha, and even though he skips over the step of the Talmud, you can, fit, you can fill in the, the empty pieces of the puzzle. How did the Rambam get from what he wrote in his commentary on the Mishnah and what he actually ruled the Halakha in his great work there's nothing else like it until today. Before the Rambam's Mishnah Torah, there was no other work like that. And from then until today, there's no other book like that. In its order, in its language, in its uh, uh, preciseness, in its all-encompassingness, in its wholesomeness. The Rambam's Mishneh Torah is a book that no one else has ever written one like. Somebody once asked me here, not in this class, why is it that you're so stuck on the Rambam? Why not another? There are other great rabbis in the world. That's right, you're correct. There are other great rabbis in the world. Who says the Rambam is always right? Nobody says. But listen carefully. There's no one else aside from the Rambam. No one else. Not one Chacham in the history of the Jewish people. Not one who wrote a book that covered all of Jewish law from A to Z. Maran wrote a Shulchan Aruch, only on the relevant areas of Halakha that were for Jews in exile. Not on the laws of the Ben Mikdash, not on the laws of judges, not on the laws of Korbanot, not on the laws of Eretz Yisrael. Maran doesn't talk about any of those things. Who else gave us a book of Halakha that is set like a table? Who else knew Halakha? It's, it's one thing to know halakha well. But to know halakha so well that you could say, you know, the Talmud that you study one page a day for seven and a half years, I'll write a summary of the whole Talmud without missing a point, without missing a topic. Not only am I going to summarize it for you, I'm going to rearrange it for you by order of topics. I'm going to write it clearly, so clearly that you can analyze every single word and find the proper halakha. There's a reason why the Rambam uses one word over another word. Simply nobody else ever did such a thing. The Rambam, in the words of our Chachamim, is one who is a gamar v'savar. He, he studied it all. He knew it all. Even Maran writes about the Rambam, that anywhere that he doesn't have an opinion, Maran doesn't say something, follow the Rambam. Many people complain about Maran. Maran is pretty much a copy of the Rambam. 
Yes, there are places where Malan disagrees. I'm not going to avoid that issue. Maybe we'll deal with it another day. But Malan says, where you don't know what to do, do like the Rambam. Where did that come into practical application for me? When I put chelet on my tzitziot. And you have to figure out, so how do you put chelet on the tzitziot? There's so many, there are different opinions. That says in the Torah, you should put a string of blue on the corner of your tzitzit. So, entertain me for a moment. Do you have a corner of your tzitzit? Yes? Can I make one please? Thank you. You have one corner, yes? On this corner, how many strings are there? There are four strings that end up becoming eight. Why? Because you loop them through and you have eight. How many, how many, don't look at my notes, it's not the humbug, yeah? How many strings are supposed to be blue? One of four, which would mean two out of eight. One out of eight, which would mean half a string. When it says, a kanaf petil techelet, there should be one string of blue on the corner of the city. Maran doesn't say, why does Maran not say? Maran doesn't have Maran is writing a Shukhan Aruch for Jews who are in exile. There is no Tchelet for Maran. The Rambam is very clear. The Rambam says one out of eight. So that's why if you look on one side, you'll see three white and one blue. You flip over the Talit, and it's four white, because halfway through, we stop dyeing the blue. This blue string ends up becoming white. Because when I don't know what Maran would want, Maran would say to follow the Rambam. That's all I need to know. Why so much respect to the Rambam? Because nobody else did it. Well, we hold like this, we don't hold like that, we hold like this rabbi, we hold like another rabbi. Who else, who else could tell us everything? So you follow another rabbi in one place where he argues with the Rambam. Where else do you follow that rabbi? You don't even know what that rabbi believed anywhere else. The Rambam is the only one who wrote a book of Halakhot that is all-encompassing. So, we continue. This is in our rabbis, those who are already passed, already showed us the different editions of the Rambam. What he wrote in one edition, he changed in different editions. Sometimes three times or four times the Rambam changes his mind. He says, when I thank Hashem many times, but I'm going to thank Him again. Blessed is Hashem who allowed me to be the son of my father and the grandson of my grandfather. Who guided me on this path, the way of the Shas, the Talmud, and the early rabbis in depth, in the way of the Geonim, in their understanding of the Mikra, and the ways of Rabbi Rambam in Halacha. The Torah of Moshe was commanded to us as an inheritance. Our Moreshet, our inheritances from this world to the next world, Ba Saknu, within that inheritance we were involved, 
Ba'oskim, that's what we are involved in currently. Ba'na'asok kol yamechayenu, and that's an inheritance that we will be involved in our entire life. Uvezrat Hashem, and with Hashem's help, anachnu uvanenu uvnevanenu kimtzuvelenu, us and our children, our children's children has been commanded on us, et asher horishanu Adonai enuhenu otanu nirash. Whatever Hashem has allowed us to inherit, we will continue to inherit. I'm going to pause here. And I really didn't need to go that far, but I didn't want to miss this. Baruch Shasani ben This blessing of Rabbi Yosef Kapach. Blessed is Hashem who put me in this camp. Now we understand a little of the history of what was going on in Yemen. In the different camps of Chachamim and where his father and grandfather fell out. He's speaking very clearly. Thank you Hashem for putting me in that bed of He could have been somewhere else. He could have learned Torah from somewhere else. The first part, though, is what I want to focus on. And that is the importance of understanding Hebrew and Arabic to understand halakha properly. What I'm going to say now will rub some Jews in the room the wrong way. It's okay. You're allowed to be rubbed the wrong way. Uh, In the New Age pursuit of uh, Judaism, a lot of real Judaism has been left behind and replaced with... uh, pseudo-Judaism that many people have been exposed to. The language of Arabic, which I'm not proficient in at all or familiar with much at all, is a sister language to Hebrew. Being that it's a sister language to Hebrew, it sheds a lot of light on how Hebrew is supposed to be, on how you understand certain words in Hebrew. Those Chachamim who didn't understand Hebrew well and also didn't understand Arabic well and used their Latin-based languages to understand the Torah made tremendous mistakes when it came to understanding the Torah. Tremendous mistakes. Yeah. I have a nephew who told me that in his Chassidut they make a Shaqon Yabit Vera on potatoes. How do you make a Shaqon Yabit on potatoes? How do you say... How do you say potato in Yiddish? A kartoffel. His rabbi thought a kartoffel and a truffle are the same thing. And until this very day, there are thousands of chassidim who make a shakol on something that clearly grows on the ground. And you tell them, listen, guys, you made a mistake. It's okay, fine, don't keep... No, he had Racha Kodesh, he knew what he was talking about, da, 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 and you think I'm making fun? It's not funny. It's a very scary situation. Because forget that there's nothing in common a potato and a, and a mushroom, but, but more than that, to get confused in the brachot of the two of them, it's very scary. The way that certain things join the world of Kitniyot with an absolute ignorance, not just of science or agriculture, but of ignorance in language. Corn. How does corn become kidney? Corn which didn't exist in Europe. How does it become kidney? It's going to make flour from it. You can make flour from anything. Look in the gluten-free section in your store. <laughs> You'd make flour from potatoes. I don't see anybody stop eating potatoes on pizza. Yes. My father actually doesn't eat potato flour on pizza. It's true. Don't, so don't, don't push. Corn. How do you say corn in Yiddish? How do you say uh, flour in Yiddish? Meal. So, something to do, I don't remember the history here, to do with the fact that corn meal sounded like flour, and that automatically included it in the category of 
flower. It was forbidden. It's a new world flower. And then it became kitniyot. How? Like that. Just like that. There are things that many of the Chachamim identified or claim to identify in the Torah that you knew very clearly a few things. Either they never saw these plants in their life. They never saw these animals in their life. There are Chachamim who believe that elephants were able to jump. What does it mean jump? Jump, jump. All four legs off the ground, jump. It's okay. It's fine. It, 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 believe You living in San Diego, had you not gone to the zoo, you also wouldn't know an elephant can't jump. An elephant can go up on its hind legs, but jump it can't. So what do you do with the early Chachamim who claim that elephants can jump because of that? There's different uh, uh, conversations surrounding elephants in, in Halakha. You just say, listen, it's okay. They lived in France. They never saw an elephant. It's fine. Nothing happened. No. Today there's wars. There were different kind of elephants. The nature of elephants changed. Unbelievable. The people that happened around, he didn't see an elephant before. It's okay. Incorrectly identifying animals that live in Eretz Israel. Animals that we know are not indigenous in the land of Israel. Are identified in the English translation of your Chumash. This animal is one of the animals the Torah is talking about. How could the Torah be telling you that this animal lived in Eretz Israel when he didn't live in Eretz Israel? There is an animal that fits that definition in Arabic that lives still in Eretz Israel. We have a refusal. We can't use it. Our tradition from the Jews who never were in Eretz Israel is to believe that that's the animal that we're referring to. There are so many places where this is obvious that there are Chachamim. Look, now we're having uh, olives here on the table. The the arguments in Halakha that broke out when Chachamim said the size of an olive, you eat an olive amount of food. How big is a zayit? Along comes a famous Chacham, I don't want to mention his name, I'm not ridiculing him, and does all kinds of uh, scientific calculations. The olives of Eretz Yisrael and the olives of today, they're not the same size. The olives used to be bigger. Today you have these people that are, they have to eat seven slices of pizza before they wash their hands. They have to eat a whole bag of cookies before they make an ahal michiyah afterwards. Because they think the olives, they were the eggs, ostrich eggs. I know they were dinosaur eggs. I don't want to size egg they're thinking is here. An olive is an olive. The olive that grew in someone's backyard didn't change sizes. Oh, you know, when my grandfather was alive, those olives were so much bigger. Same olives on the tree. It doesn't help that now we come back to Anitza's land. And we find old olives from the time of the second Ben-Mikdash. Underground, stuck in clay or wherever else we find them. And they're the same exact size as the olives you have on the table. So what happens then? So when all the Chachamim who rolled the size of the olive changed, which Chachamim am I talking about? Every single Chacham you know. Every one of them tells you how big of a matzah you have to eat on Pesach. The size of an olive. What's an olive? You want to get a big olive? This is a jumbo sized olive. You want to eat that much matzah? Fine. Two olives? Two olives. Two olives still doesn't make a whole matzah. Okay, it depends how small. Jack is correct. That's why I did a small matzah. Yeah. But it says kezayit, kebetzah. Kezayit is one measurement. Kebetzah is another measurement. This problem was so obvious to many chachamim that whereas today, Arabic, oh, it's a language, uh, terrorists speak Arabic. This wasn't a new, you think you're inventing the wheel. Arabic is a language our chachamim were very proficient in. It was very important for Chachamim to know. Our Chachamim viewed Arabic, the Biyudah Levi writes, 
It's one of the most refined languages that we have. Arabic is like Hebrew. An unrefined language? Speak English. <laughs> Think about how many words you have to use in English to say something that in Hebrew you can say in three words. When you translate one Chacham's commentary on the Chumash, you have to write seven or eight volumes in English to translate what this Chacham said in one sentence. Or any translation. I'm not a the art scroll. By the way, look at the translations. I, I read these translations. You think I understand anything in that translation? Sometimes I have to bring a dictionary to understand what they're writing in the English translation. You never saw this word before in your life. You come across the halakha, the laws of phylacteries. Yeah. Have you in your lifetime ever used the word phylactery? Except for reading about phylacteries inside of a book? Is it a Yeah, But how are you supposed to know that? It's a language that's not so clear. So, I want to read to you from Achacham. I've been quoting a lot recently because I'm reading a book about him. Moshe Chazan has a book where he's writing a conversation between two Eastern rabbis, meaning Sephardic rabbis, and their uh, counterpart, who's a merchant from the cultured European Jews. And he complains that these uh, Sephardic Jews, it's just so hard to listen to them. Because they, they sound like they're choking all the time when they speak. <laughs> the head and the ayin, you know, it all sounds so guttural, it's so, you can't even listen to them. And they're listening, and the Chemer attends to talk, and he says, you mean you're allergic to the sounds of our holy language Hebrew? This is the sound you're allergic to? That's the way Hebrew is pronounced. If you want to complain something about the Sfaradim, let me complain to you about the Sfaradim. So he writes, Kimi ten vaya, Vavotenu akadmonim yoshvea mizrach, Hishtadulil lelamed et bnei Yehuda alashon hazot ad Buria. You want to complain about the Sfaradim? Complain that our parents didn't teach us Arabic well enough. Vetsar lanu meod meod, and it causes us tremendous suffering. Because the only Arabic we know is conversational Arabic to chit-chat in. How amazing would it be if we actually knew Arabic properly? Rabbi Yosef Kapach makes it his life's mission to translate Arabic works into Hebrew because he knows it's going to be the last generation of Tamil Chamin who speak Arabic. What's going to happen to all the writings of the Rambam in Arabic? What's going to happen to all the writings of Rav Sandegon in Arabic? What's going to happen to all the writings that were translated from Arabic into Hebrew and were full of mistakes? Because the people who translated them didn't speak Arabic. What's going to happen then? Because somebody can't pick up. Who said it here on Shabbat? Someone said it here on Shabbat. You can't pick up the nuance of a language. I it from silver, uh, and oh, very good. You can't pick up the nuance of a language. Unless you speak that language. You never see a, a, someone who speaks English. They've been in this country for many years. They know English well. But then you use some kind of expression. Go break a leg. You want me to break my leg? What kind of, are you cursing me now before my graduation? Go break a leg. And the truth is that they're right. Because go break a leg doesn't mean anything nice in English. Unless you understand it's an expression. The expression is meant to go do well. Why it means that? I don't know. I'm not an expert in English expressions. But for someone who knows English well, an English professor from another country, 
still wouldn't know how to translate that correctly. And would translate literally, go break a lake in another language. And a hundred years down the road, you're looking at the Rambam's razor. Why does he want us to break our legs? The manuscripts that we use, that were translated by people who Arabic that wasn't their first language, wasn't a language they were fluent in, was full of problems. And that's precisely why Rabbeinu Saad Yagon, he mentions the commentary of Rabbeinu Saad Yagon. It's one of the early works that Rabbi Yosef Kapach wrote. This is the, this is the Rabbeinu Saad Yagon uh, translation of the Torah that Rabbeinu Kapach wrote. And you know, you read it and you wonder, who needs this book? Who needs this book? It's such a silly book. What do I mean it's such a silly book? It says, Rav Sadia Gaon's commentary on the Torah. And you read it. You could have written it. Give me an example. Bereshit. What does the word Bereshit mean? In the beginning, yeah? What about all the commentaries that don't translate Bereshit as in the beginning? It's better not. Don't don't read the commentary. Yeah. Bara. Sheet. All kinds of interesting words. Rafsalagon writes, Barishona. Bereshit means in the beginning. Don't get confused. This is what it means. Baratita tohu vavohu. What is tohu? The world was chaos, we say, yeah? What does tohu mean? Really tohu? Tohu is from the word tehom. Depths. The world was depths full of water. Uvavohu. So tohu is tehom mela'amayim. And vohu is covered in water. I mean, I'm standing on saying, this is what we heard from our rabbis, from our rabbis, from our rabbis, from Moshe Rabbeinu, what it means when you read the Torah. But it was written in Arabic. And Rasad Egon had to go through and retranslate the Torah from Arabic translation back into a Hebrew translation. And that's why he has extensive footnotes, which shows you why he used this Hebrew word for an Arabic word. And oftentimes you see, the Hebrew word and the Arabic word are almost identical to each other. Rehosef Kappa. Kappa. What is it? Rav Sadegon translated into Arabic. And Rav Kapach translated the Arabic back to the Hebrew. So now you have a Hebrew commentary on the Hebrew Kumash. But it's an unbelievable work. Today, Baruch Hashem, you can buy a Tanakh. There's a Tanakh called Torah Chaim. It has many commentaries that put up by Musa of Kuk. If I'm not mistaken, over there they have on the Chumash a running commentary of Rav Sadegon on the Chumash. Rav Sadegon, all that Rav Kapach translates, it's Rav Kapach's translation, put inside of the Chumash. These are important things. The moment that we abandoned the languages that were closest to Hebrew is the moment that we didn't understand anymore the traditions that we were trying to convey. That's a mistake. It's a mistake in our heads, this, this hatred of anything that has to do with Arabs and Arabic. I'm not telling you that there's not justified cause in the world to be upset, to be fighting, to be hurt, and, and even maybe terrified. But it's a mistake. On a bigger picture level, it's a mistake. Because so much of our heritage, what do you mean our? I mean all of Amisa. I'm not talking here about Sephardim and Ashwazi. So much of our heritage is intertwined with the language, with the culture, with the customs. 
But most importantly, because who cares about culture and customs? Our Torah. So much of our Torah is on the verge of being lost because we no longer speak the language of our Chachamim, who essentially translated many of their writings into those books or wrote in those languages ideally. And therefore, it shouldn't surprise you that in Yemen, there were two commentaries that were most used on the Torah. The commentary of Unculus and the commentary of Sadigon. Unculus wrote his commentary in which language? Aramaic. Aramaic. So who understands Aramaic? Yemenite Jews. I mean, you're Jewish. No, you have yeah. to speak Aramaic well. You have to know Aramaic well. How do you study most of the rabbinic literature if you don't know Aramaic? But in the olden days, you could tell Talmud Chacham. How well does Talmud Chacham know Aramaic? If he doesn't know Aramaic well, you probably don't know if he's really a Talmud Chacham. And therefore you use Onkelos' translation of the Torah in tandem with Rav Sadiagon's Arabic translation of the Torah. These are two very early works translating the Torah. And then when you want to understand, so what does the Pasuk really mean? Instead of having to rely on commentaries, you can rely on translations. Translations that bring you to an earlier and more accurate understanding of what the Torah really meant. And then sometimes you'll sit at the Shabbat table and you'll wonder, when someone says a Dvar Torah, how on earth could you say such a nonsensical Dvar Torah? Someone told me today something. Pesach, and another word, but Pesach is with a Chet, and this one is with a Chaf, and he mixed it all together because they both go <laughs> They have a famous Dvar uh, Torah. They say, Parashat Balak is the acronym of Ve'avta L'Racha Kamocha. But Balak is spelled Bet, Lamed, Kuf. Ve'avta L'Racha Kamocha is Vav, Lamed, Chaf. But Alam Ha'aret will say Shut Dvar Torah. Now the story that they tell is made to make fun of the one who doesn't accept the Dvar Torah because he's such a heretic. He doesn't even believe the Dvar Torah. But the Torah is nonsensical. But so much of what we study sounds like Balak is the acronym of because we don't even know the language that we're reading. It would be wise for the Jewish people if we're not yet in a path to understand Arabic or Aramaic to at the very least understand our own language. To understand Hebrew. To understand Hebrew so you won't have to rely on this. They hear a parasha and they tell a word. This word in Hebrew means this and it's similar to another word in Hebrew that means that. But it doesn't really make sense to anybody. I told Akharan today, hold on strong. The word hold on and strong in Hebrew are the same root. When you become mit chazak, when you renew your energies, also chazak. When a Jew understands what does the word chazak mean, then all of the doors to your Hebrew open up. When you understand Hebrew in context, you don't have to speak Hebrew yet, but to understand the Hebrew that's in front of you, to open up the book, to write translations inside. That's going to pay back one day. You're not going to have to rely on someone else's translation when you read your own books. Because you want to be able to understand what Gashbach told you. <coughs> and that's precisely what the Rambam did for us. It's what Rabbi Yosef Kappach is trying to do for us as well. God willing, we'll continue the second half of the shield tomorrow night.